Father, we ask that as we open up your word that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that your voice would be louder and more defining to us than all of the other voices. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So a couple weeks ago, my wife Alicia and I were outside and we were talking about a book that she had been reading by a therapist whose name was Raymond Corsini. Corsini, it's a hard name to say. Um, but it was interesting because she shared with me the story that he told about a time when he was seeing patients in the Auburn prison in New York. And uh, the story goes like this. One day, an inmate walked into his office, and he described him as a fairly attractive man in his 30s, and he pointed to the chair, and the prisoner sat down, and he waited to see what he wanted. And the conversation was something like this. The prisoner said, quote, I'm leaving on parole Thursday, and I didn't want to leave until I thanked you for what you have done for me. And he said, well, uh, what was that? <laughs> and he said, well, when I left your office two years ago, I felt like I was walking on thin air. When I went into the prison yard, everything looked different. The air smelled different. I was a new person. Instead of going to the group I usually hung out with, they were a bunch of thieves, he said, I went over to a group of square johns, which I guess is a prisoner talk for well-behaved inmates. And he said, I changed from a cushy job in the kitchen to the machine shop where I could learn a trade and I completed my high school diploma, and then I took a correspondence course, and now I have a drafting job when I leave on Thursday. I started going back to church, even though I'd left religion years ago, and I started writing to my family, and now they come regularly to see me, and they remember you in their prayers. And then he said this, you freed me. I now know I will succeed in life. I know who I am. And the therapist was shocked, he said, because to the best of my knowledge, I had never spoken with this man. <laughs> he said, I looked at his folder, and the only notation there was that he had administered an IQ test to this guy a couple years ago. And he said to him, are you sure it was me? I mean, the kind of radical change that you're talking about only happens after many years of deep work. And the prisoner said, it was you, all right, and I will never forget what you said to me. And Corsini said, well, what was that? He said, you told me I had a high IQ. One brief sentence, these five brief words radically changed his life. You know, it was the philosopher Alistair McIntyre who famously said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? And up to this point in this guy's life, he said that the story that he had been told, the story that was spoken over his life from his family, from his friends, uh, from uh, the, the neighbors, from teachers, is that he was stupid and crazy. He said, I was convinced that that's just who I was and I was living out of that story. But those five words, you have a high IQ, radically spoke a different kind of story over his life, and it changed everything. You know, today we are gonna be launching into a new series in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis entitled Human. 
And what we're gonna be talking together about is how the opening stories about the first humans actually speak a story over our lives if we let it, and it can be a defining story for who we are and how we live in this world. And today we're gonna open up the series by looking at arguably the most foundational words in the Bible about what it means to be human. And in fact, I wanna share with you seven words that like the words that were spoken over that young man, if you let them get into your heart and life, literally have the power to change how you view yourself, how you view others around you, and how you view your, your call in this world. And the seven words are simply this, you are created in the image of God. You are created in God's image. And listen to how the text of Scripture describes this. So uh, the words I'm going to read to you come from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And in context, these words are spoken on the sixth day of God's creative acts. And on each day of creation, there is a pattern, and there's symmetry, and there's repetition, and there is a verdict that God renders over his creation. And the the verdict that he renders over creation is this, it is good. And he looks at, at each, each thing he makes, and it is good. It's as if the, the author is telling us that God has a relationship with his creatures apart from us. You know, God uh, loved and spoke his verdict over creation long before you and I ever arrived on the scene. Their God was delighting in his works, in his creation. And so there's this pattern, and there's symmetry, and there's repetition. But then the pattern is broken on the sixth day of creation, And there's an utterly new kind of creation. And after the creation of all of, of, after the creation of this creature on day six, God's verdict intensifies. Up to this point, it was, it is good, it is good, it is good. But then after this final creative act, God speaks this word, it is very good. And look at the text, look at what it says. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the sky and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now, a couple observations. Uh, Notice he says, let us. And so God is deliberating about this creative act. Let us do this. And, and we wonder, who is God speaking to? And um, some have supposed, uh, many uh, scholars of the Hebrew language will say, look, in the Hebrew language, there is such thing called a plural of majesty. And this is when that which is being described is so fulsome. It is uh, so rich that, that the singular will not do, and so you have to use the plural to express all of that fullness. And perhaps that's what's happening here. The fullness of God cannot be contained by the singular, and so when God deliberates, it's not let me, it is let us in all of his fullness and glory. Of course, later Christian commentators have seen in this an early uh, reference to the triune nature of God that the one true God uh, is, who is a community of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and being and in perfection and power, and yet eternally existing in three distinct persons. And so perhaps the us 
The R is an early hint into the, the nature of God as a community of love. But he says, let us, and then he says, let us make mankind in our image. Now, I want you to notice that word mankind. If you have an ESV Bible, it says, let us make man in our image. The word translated man is the Hebrew word Adam, and actually throughout the book of Genesis, Adam consistently refers to humanity. It's not uh, gendered. Uh, There is in the second chapter of Genesis where it does refer to a personal name, namely Adam, who himself is the head of the human race. But in this case, God is speaking here of the human race because look at what it says in the next verse. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In other words, of course, in the biblical imagination, both men and women image God. We are all created in the image of God. But the question I want to ask is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the divine image anyway? What does it mean that you bear the image of God? And this is one of the most debated topics in the history of the church. It has had more ink spilled on it than just about anything else. And, um, but if you, if you kind of coalesce together the best teaching of the church on this, what almost all the best thinkers agree is that in some sense, what it means to be created in the image of God involves both vocation as well as identity. First, it involves vocation. Notice because right after he says he created the humans in his own image, there's a so that. Let us make mankind in our image so that they may what? they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move on the ground. In other words, what it means to image God in this world is to reflect his own wise and loving stewardship and care and rule over all creation. Now, I know that that word rule is uh, not one we use very often, You know, most of you are not saying like, I was ruling at home this week. You know, I'm a teacher and I rule in my classroom. You know, maybe if you grew up in the 80s, you know, you might've used that word like surfing rules, you know, bro, you rule, you know, (laughs) like, um, but it's not a word we use much. But the, the idea in the Hebrew, it has nothing to do with the way in which this verse has been abused by Christians throughout church history. Uh, This is not about exploitation or abuse or manipulation or coercion of creation. It's not simply exploiting the resources of creation to serve our own self-centered ends. It's not that kind of ruling because in the book of Genesis in chapter one, the one who first is exerting rule and power is God, and so those image bearers will reflect God's own way in which he exercises power. And how does God exercise power in Genesis 1? Well, it's not in coercive, abusive ways. God evokes. Uh, the, The refrain in the text is, let there be. It's as if he's saying, let creation become its full and beautiful self. God uses his power to evoke, to invite, to generously give, to bless, to create, and to empower creation to become its full and fruitful and flourishing and blessed self. And so whatever it means to rule over God's world as his image bearers, it means to engage in the use of human power, which we have a lot of it, in ways that reflect God's own wise and generous 
and loving rule in this world. It is to evoke, it is to invite, it is to empower others. And so to be made in the image of God means first of all, vocation. This is a calling. Now, it's not just vocation though, it also involves identity. Because uh, notice back in the text, he says, let us make, or it says, and so God created the human in his own image and in his own likeness. It's not just vocation, it also involves something essential about who we are as humans. We are made in the image of God. But again, what exactly, and what exactly does that mean and how are we like God anyway? And many people throughout church history, again, have imagined different ways in which we might be uniquely like God. Some have supposed it might be the rational, deliberative part of our humanity. Some, it might be our speech acts and our power to create through words. Uh, some might, be, might say it's our spiritual component that we can connect to God uh, in unique ways. You know, it's not the animal kingdom that creates temples. It's uniquely something humans do. Uh, it might be our relational capacity, uh, our, our, our engagement uniquely in the world in such a way that in relationship we come to discover who we are. And so many people have supposed different ways in which we might understand this word uh, identity, what it means to be like God. But the thing that I wanna show you is, um, is a couple theologians that I think have named this better than any other that I have engaged with. And one comes from way back in the fourth century, his name is Gregory of Nyssa. And listen to how Gregory puts it. I'm calling, let's just call him Greg. Listen to how Greg puts it. He's one of the Cappadocian fathers. You guys are gonna thank me when this is over because we're gonna get a Cappadocian father and then, then we're gonna get a Dutch theologian from the 19th century. So, I mean, today is like your lucky day. But listen to how Gregory of Nyssa describes what it means, what does it mean for you to be created in the image of God? He says this, your maker from the start endowed your essential nature with such good. God has imprinted upon your structure replicas of the good things in his own nature, as though stamping wax with the shape of a design. Did you see that? I love that descriptive phrase, look at that. God has imprinted upon your structure replicas of the good things in his own nature. You know, um, our, our kids sometimes, when we blow out a candle at the dinner table, sometimes like to play with the wax, like stick their fingers in the wax, you know? And when you put your finger in the wax, it leaves an impression. And the, the, the analogy he's drawn upon here is that God, in creating humans, left an impression on us so that we, in our very structure, uniquely reflect some of those good and beautiful aspects of who God is. Now, the, there's another theologian I, I want to like, read to you now who, 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 who states this idea in a slightly different way, but I think it's really important how he says it because, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're reading people, what, what people are always asking is, how are we different from the animal creatures? And if you could name how you are different from an animal, you know, then you can maybe identify what it means to be created in the image of God. But what's interesting about this next theologian, his name is Herman Bavink, which is just a great name. Herman Bavink, Herman, are you up there? Um, but yes, Herman, <laughs> your namesake, brother. Um, but, but he says something interesting. He says, he says, consider the rest of creation. Leading up to this moment, 
when God creates the human creature, leading up to this moment, God has created so much beauty, and what has he named it? He has named it good. He has called it good, and it's good, and it's good. Who is the infinite ground and source of all that is good and true and beautiful but God? And what does that mean except for all of creation in some sense is a stamp of God's own infinite beauty and goodness. There is so much beauty all around. And, and he puts it like this. He says the entire world is a beautiful and lush revelation of God, a mirror of his attributes and perfections. Every creature in its own way and degree is the embodiment of a divine thought. I looked at my dog, Brutus, yesterday after I read that. I'm like, Brutus, the embodiment of a divine thought, you know? <laughs> it's like, dang, you know? And he says, and of them, they display the footsteps or vestiges of God. In creation, God's virtues are on display. We can get a taste, we can get a vestige of the one who is infinite beauty and infinite goodness and infinite being within his own self. When you go on a hike or you're at the beach or you watch that sunset, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? And yet, he goes on and he says, the visible world, as beautiful and lush a revelation of God as it is, he says, there is one who God puts in creation that goes a step further. That's almost like a concentrated embodiment or example or representation of God's goodness and love, and it's the human creature. And look at how he puts it. He says, the human is not the divine self, but nevertheless a finite creaturely impression of the divine. All that is in God this is breathtaking, all that is in God, his spiritual essence, his virtues and perfections, his imminent self-distinctions, his self-communication, his self-revelation and creations, finds its admittedly finite and limited analogy in the likeness and likeness in humanity. And then he says this, among creatures, human nature is the supreme and most perfect revelation of God. Now, do you see what he's saying here? I mean, think for a moment, in the late modern world, you know, within our secular, uh, materialistic uh, thinking oftentimes, what does it mean to be human? It means nothing more than to be, in the words of Bertrand Russell, you are nothing more than an accidental collocation of atoms. You are the end result of a process that never had you in mind anyway. We are just a big cosmic accident. You might look for a higher purpose, but there is no higher purpose, according to materialistic thinking. But according to the biblical narrative, you are not a cosmic accident. You are not a highly evolved bag of molecules. You bear in the very structure of who you are some glory because you reflect the imprints of, of, of the goodness of God. And that is a high and beautiful vision of what it means to be human, isn't it? And so, so he, he is teaching us here what it means. It, it involves vocation and identity. And what I wanna do now is I wanna just draw out and reflect on three implications of this radical truth and what it means for us. Number one, first implication is this. The image of God 
means radical equality among the entire human family. The image of God means radical equality among the entire human family. You know, this is, I think this is incredibly interesting. So um, many people, many people think that the, the, the most significant idea that challenged our reading of Genesis uh, in the last 150 years is Darwinian evolution. But it's actually not. The most significant discovery in the last 150 years that really challenged how scholars read the book of Genesis is the, discover, is the discovery of other ancient Near Eastern creation stories that surface in the world of the writers of the, of the Old Testament. And um, one of the most popular and almost certainly known stories in the world of ancient Israel was the story of creation uh, called the Enuma, the Enuma Elish. You guys remember this from stories from Mesopotamia? Anybody from, come on, nobody? All right, fine. The two of you who want to hear about this, we're going to go on. So um, the, the story of Enuma Elish, I was reviewing it this week again. It's just fascinating. It's like this poetic description. And um, if you ask the question, how did creation come into being? Here is how it's described. Um, the god Marduk defeats the forces of chaos in the form of the goddess Tiamat. And then he slays Tiamat, he slices her in half, he takes the upper torso and makes that the heavens and the bottom part of uh, the earth and, um, and the world is born out of this violent, bloody chaos. I mean, it's just great reading, it's great stuff. Later on in the same story, the gods uh, get tired of making food for themselves which you can relate, you gotta cook, you gotta clean up after yourself, my goodness, somebody, you know, call, you know, Uber Eats or something, you know, like they didn't have Uber Eats, so the gods, and they, they got tired of digging trenches too, they were digging, they were working, they were eating, and they were just like, we need to create someone that we can enslave, that can serve us that can bring us food, that can service our needs, and so, uh, they kill one of the gods, they slit his throat, they take some of his blood, they mingle it with clay, and then um, and, 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 and they make humans. And again, life is born out of violent chaos. Now think, in this story, who are we and why are we here? Well, according to this narrative, humans are there to serve the gods and to do their menial tasks. They are there to, to, to be the slaves of the gods. Now, think about this. In their stories in the ancient Near East, the one who was in the image of God, do you know who it was? Do you know who bore God's image in the ancient Near East? It was the king. The king bore the image of God. And so, you know, and you know this from the Prince of Egypt, right? Some of you have seen the, the best animated film of all time. Do you remember Pharaoh? He said, I am Egypt, I am the morning and evening star. To say, I am the representative of the gods among you. And so what were these original stories intended to do? They were intended to get the common people to dig their trenches and to bring the king their food and to pay their taxes and to feed the gods, the kings, with their earthly produce from their fields. You see, these ancient stories oftentimes were, 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 were myths there to legitimate the existing power structures. But into this world, 
a new story is told, and Genesis strikes a radically different chord. Genesis 1 is radical. It is revolutionary in the ancient world. There's nothing else like it. There is no conflict. There's no bloody violence in which the universe comes to being. Instead, the universe comes into being through the creative, loving, spoken speech of God. And then God creates the human creatures, and it's not the king that bears the image of God. Rather, it is the entire human community that is created in the image of God. And you just think, like, wow, what kind of social structure might this create? And when you read the rest of the, the, the Torah, you discover what kind of society Israel imagined. It was one that would be ordered in a very economically egalitarian way where there were no kings that would rule over the people. In fact, uh, every tribe and every family had their own plot of land, and they were stewards of this land. Ultimately, the, the world belonged to God, and they were to steward creation and to honor the land and to honor their neighbors and to love, and people were treated with dignity and respect. And so this was the vision of, uh, of the, the, these original accounts is it was to, to create an imagination, like a social imagination, like could you imagine a world where all human beings were treated with equal dignity and respect, were seen as brothers and sisters in this world? You know, um, a couple years ago, I came across a book by uh, uh, a theologian and pastor whose name was Richard Wills, and Richard Wills, interestingly, was the pastor of uh, the Baptist church that Dr. Martin Luther King at one point pastored. And he wrote a book, his, uh, I think it was his academic dissertation on Dr. King, and it's interesting because the title of this book was called Martin Luther King and the Image of God. And do you know what his argument was? is that the entire foundation for the civil rights movement for Dr. King, the theological and philosophical foundation of that movement was this belief that human beings, all human beings bore the image of God. Dr. King put it like this, he says, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that, it, that all people have something within them that God injected. And this gives us a uniqueness, it gives us worth, it gives us dignity. And we must never forget that this, this as a nation, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every human from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every human is made in the image of God. Who are we? You have immense worth and dignity, and so do all of your neighbors. So do people all over the world. So do people you might consider your enemy. We all bear a common origin in the creative speech of God who created us in his image. And so, number one, th this, this speaks to us about radical human equality. But second, it not only speaks about radical human equality, th th this, this vision of the image of God speaks to us about our own immense dignity. And not just our immense dignity, the immense dignity of the people who are sitting next to you. I mean, think for a minute 
I mean, we live in a culture right now where we are so polarized and our discourse is so fraught with hate and anger. And it is so common for us to look down on others with disdain and to treat others with contempt and to speak of others in such awful ways with such snap judgments. And it's as if this text wakes us up to the weight of glory that the neighbor that you live next to shares with you. They also have been created in the image of God. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant essay, uh, The Weight of Glory, speaks about this issue, and, and he puts it like this. This is such, this is so good. Actually, this is, let's go Tim Keller, then we'll go to C.S. Lewis. Can we do that? Tim Keller says, look, there is a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory and significance about you and every human being. And that reality, that awareness about the people around you, about our, our brothers and sisters who are unhoused on the streets, who might through generational trauma have found themselves in places of addiction and poverty, not by their own choices and doing necessarily, but because of generational ways in which, and systemic ways in which they find themselves in a place. And yet we make such snap judgments. And people who we have no idea really about how they think or believe about, and then we just make these judgments and disdain and contempt but there is a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory and significance about you and every human being. And C.S. Lewis says this weight of your neighbor's glory ought to be something you carry with you. And he puts it like this. Listen, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. And this reality that all humans are created in the image of God informs ethics and how we think about ethical issues. Think about from, from, from the life of the unborn to all the way to the end to issues like euthanasia, to every kind of issue in between relating to how we treat undocumented workers or the people who are, who are working on our factory farms or, or the way humans are treated all over the world. All of these issues need to be viewed through this biblical lens of the image of God. And what we probably need to do is move a little bit further away from our political ideological lenses and instead put on this different kind of lens that might, lend us in, might lead us into becoming a different kind of community that engages with people in different sorts of ways. So the image of God, this means radical equality. It means, it means immense dignity. And then thirdly and finally, it means a high calling. Now, we're gonna talk more about this in the weeks to come, and so I just wanna be brief on this point. Uh, we're gonna talk more in the weeks to come about the implications this has for our work 
and for our care of creation and our engagement with other aspects of reality that God, the creator, called into being. We're gonna talk about that. But what I wanna just point out is this. Listen, what does it actually mean? I mean, think about what it, what it might mean to image something. The best illustration I've heard about this is um, a mirror. And did you ever have the experience as a child? I remember we used to go out in the back field across the street, there was a field back there and we would go there and we'd gather together a pile of leaves. And I remember trying to cook stuff in the back field. But I remember we, we used to try to light the fire with a mirror. You know, you'd take the sun and it would shine down and you'd shine it on there and you'd wait till it got intense and then it would start to smoke and then it would ignite. And one of the frames through which we can think about being created in the image of God is that we are to mirror the compassion and the love and the beauty of God into this world. We are to look up and behold the face of that infinite beauty and infinite goodness and infinite love. And then as we engage with God, then we, we shine the fire of his love and we bring warmth and we bring creativity and we bring goodness into every sphere where we enter when we engage as a true image bearer of God. And this, friends, is a high calling. Do you, do you see the worth and the value you have. You know, so often we, we, we talk about how we need to trust in God and, and of course, trust God. But have you ever considered how much God has entrusted you with? Have you ever considered the calling God has? God gives us such immense worth and dignity. We have work to do in this world. We've been called by God. And some of us have maybe set our sights too low We've thought too low of ourselves. We've thought too low of our neighbors. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we all need to be creative geniuses and have musical talents and artistic abilities. I'm talking about stuff that maybe is more powerfully effective in the lives of other people, namely refracting into their life the love and the compassion and the goodness of God and how you treat other humans. We have a high calling. Now we're gonna build that out in the weeks ahead. But... Let me just close with this. Like, image of God, it means radical equality. It means immense dignity. It, it, it means high calling. But it also creates a tension, I think, for us, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know if this came to your mind in this sermon yet, but I was thinking as I was studying, I'm like, this is what it means to be human. Like, this is humanity at its best, you know? Um, this is in the words of Irenaeus, you know, um, the glory of God is man fully alive. This is humanity coming fully alive as an image bearer in this world. Immense dignity, immense worth, high calling. Like, like this is what it means to be human. And then I just thought, we are not very good at doing human. And what's happened? Or rather than mirroring the love and the glory and the beauty of the infinite God and fixing our hearts and our lives on God and orient ourselves around the God who made us 
and who placed us in this world and being accountable to him with our engagement in this world. Instead of turning to this God and then reflecting his love into the world, we've turned to lesser gods. Our longing for power and we've looked to that and then we've gone out in the world and imaged that. We've longed for control or security or simply pleasure or we've longed to dominate and we look to other kinds of gods and then we image that stuff out in the world and it is ruining us. We have become dehumanized because we are no longer imaging God. We are not living into this calling. And we are stuck. You know, I was thinking about this um, image and one of the observations I had when uh, Ryan showed me this, he's like, hey, what do you think about this? I'm like, that looks like ransom letters. And I thought, that's right. You write a ransom note when you're stuck. And you name, I want freedom. I want to become human again. And we human creatures have been lost and stuck underneath the enslaving powers of sin and death and darkness. So that though glorious we are, though there is an inherent, a primal goodness in you. The thing that is most true about you actually is that you are created in the image of God. That is what is most true about us. And yet we have turned to lesser things and we become enslaved to darkness and trapped and now we're stuck. But the good news of Christianity is that the God, the creator of all things, saw the ransom letter (laughs) and he entered into creation and he took on our humanity. And God in Christ was the true image of God, the one who we never fully lived into being. Christ came in and lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserve to die so that ultimately he might break the power of sin and death and darkness that keeps us humans trapped so that he might set us free so that we might know freedom and forgiveness and learn over the long course of our lives how to become human again. You know, some of you are new to Christianity and you're like, what's this whole thing about anyway? Listen, one of the things that this is at its base, we are learning how to become human again. You know, the, the, the goal of the Christian life is not to become more religious if by religious you mean becoming a good religious person who goes to church and does all the religious things and becomes more and more self-righteous over the time and separated from other people. No, like, no, like, Christ has come so that the image of God might be restored in us so that we might once again live into this calling to be imitators of God as dear beloved children extending love and grace and forgiveness, imaging all that we've received from Christ back out into the world. 